Welcome to Act Pod, a podcast show that sheds light on the stories and impact of the social sector. The show is proudly powered by Aspire Coronation Trust Foundation. Let's begin the change. Hello there. We are back for another insightful conversation on your favorite show, Act Pod, our story, our continent. I am Abiodun Owo, and I'm going to be your host on today's edition. In a moment, we're going to be talking about the future of African philanthropy. For as long as I know, and I bet as you know, Africans have always been described with not so great attributes, like we are underdeveloped, the third world, always depending on the Western world for aid, for assistance. And even in all of this, we have giants in Africa who are doing great things for Africa and in Africa. And that is why today I'm going to be having this discussion with someone I call an African icon. Yes, wait for her reveal. She is the CEO of Africa's biggest private foundation. Yes, you got it right, Dangote Foundation. Please welcome Mrs. Zuera Yusufu. Hello. Hello, ma'am. I'm literally dancing in my seat because I'm so honored and excited to have you here. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, ma'am. So we start with, um, please tell us about yourself and how you got into the philanthropy space. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, Again, this is a pleasure for me to be here today. So my name is Zoira Yusufu, like you said. Um, I'm from Niger Republic. um, And I spent different parts of my working career um, that ultimately led me to here. I started off um, working on private sector development issues in my country, Mm -hmm. in Niger. Then I went back to the U.S. to get an MBA. Then I worked on Wall Street for a while, left because it felt very um, one-dimensional. There was only one bottom line, and that was making money, which was fine (laughs) at the time. But... You know, ultimately, as a woman from Niger, it felt important for me to do something that was given back um, to my people. And so I joined IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank. I worked there for a while. um, And what I was doing there was working on the gender program that IFC was just starting. Um, And the idea was, how do we support women entrepreneurs in Africa specifically Mm -hmm. um, using the resources that IFC had? So I did that for a while. It was great. Then I joined the World Bank um, as a country manager, managed three countries in Africa, the relationship of the the World Bank with three countries in Africa. And then I was hired into this job um, to run the Adinko Dangote Foundation. So really, that ultimate goal of making a difference in people's lives is Mm -hmm. what drew me to here. And I feel like my entire life experience has brought me to this now. I remember the biggest dissatisfaction with my Wall Street job was that it was only about me, my paycheck, and the company. There was no other beneficiaries. And so, you know, as as all of us are in Africa, we all grew up with this sense of you have to help, you have to share, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to whom much is given, much is required. All of us are supporting somebody extra in our family, um, no matter what our level of income is. In a family, the one who's doing better is always helping the ones who are, you know, doing a little less well. And so that thing was missing in Mm -hmm. that um, just entirely for-profit-driven world. And so, 
you know, here I am working, doing exactly what I love, which is um, being able to make a difference in people's lives and in a way that I can see, that I can measure, that I can touch. And we know who our beneficiaries are. We were just in Kanwa last week, so it's mm-hmm. easy to see who the people are that we're helping. And that is, you know, the best part of my job. Hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. What a journey. Uh, it's <laughs> been a long so one. <laughs> yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, we have established earlier, you know, that um, our continent, we've been seen as always being needy, you know, of help, even when we're supposedly supposed to be helping ourselves. But mm-hmm. I would just like your opinion on uh, the landscape of philanthropy in Africa. Where do you see us at now? You know, looking at where we, we started from, we've started from. Mm-hmm. What what does it look like now? Now, philanthropy in Africa, and how do you think that is contributing to economic growth across okay. the continent? <clears throat> so, first of all, I think we need to just, in general, stop saying that African philanthropy just started. I think mm-hmm. organized, structured philanthropy right. might be recent. Um, you know, people have an actual foundations that they you know put money into, hire professional teams to run, etc. That's maybe newer, mm-hmm. but even before. ACT was born, the founders of ACT um, Trust were doing philanthropic things, just that they weren't doing it in the specific way that was called philanthropy. So I think it's really important for us to to be clear on that. If we go back to when we think about a foundation today, we think about, you know, the Western ones. We think about the Gates Foundation, Rockefeller, you know, we think about those kinds of foundations. But we have, we've had a lot of African philanthropy ongoing for a very long time. So I think it's, it's important for us to recognize that. Very often, a lot of this philanthropy was quiet. Right? Mm. Because the more you talk about what you do, the more you're overwhelmed with requests and needs. right? right? So that's, yes. that's like another reality. So mm. if you go even to Kano, You'll be shocked to see how many individuals have set up feeding stations, um, programs to take care of, uh, you know, women suffering with VVF, mm-hmm. people collecting f- uh, clothing and, and blankets for people who are struggling when it's cold mm-hmm. in the northern part of the country. No one talks about that because they're not, they don't have websites, they don't have, you know, they're not in the, in the normal discourse. So I think it's important to just say that from the beginning that we didn't learn philanthropy from the West. The second thing is this narrative about Africa needing to be helped, I think also is an old and tired narrative because if you really think about the the economic power balance between Africa and our former um, colonizers and, you know, uh, us being colonies and Europe and America developing on the back of our labor and still taking resources out of our continent. I think that narrative doesn't even serve us and it's just not true. Mm. So the facts are, yes, we don't have the proper infrastructure in place for health. That's an example. Mm. But why? Why don't we? Mm. When we look at a, a, a country like Nigeria that has every natural resource in life and yet we import from the West things that we could be producing here. So those are things that we need to question and, you know, hold our leaders into account to, you know, tell us why, 
you know, we see some things happening. I'm not trying to promote my my own organization too mm. much, but if you think about the refinery or the cement or sugar, these are all investments that are to increase our reliance on ourselves and pr yeah. produce in Africa what we are consuming in Africa. Mm. So these are things that we can do. So this whole idea that we're just sitting here waiting for some you know, Western savior to come and get us and help us is just, it's never materialized. We don't have a single country in the world that's been developed with outside aid, talk less philanthropy, right? Mm -hmm. So all the organizations, I worked at the World Bank, so I can say this very confidently. They're my friends. I used to, I was there for over 10 years. But the goal is never going to be that the World Bank or the IMF or the European Reconstruction Bank are going to help us sort ourselves out. We need to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why African philanthropy, alongside everything else that we do in Africa, for ourselves is so important. If we don't manage our agency, somebody will try to do it for us. Right. But Nigeria is a very particular country because it's the one place that I've lived where I can say that Nigerians are in charge of Nigeria. Right? Nigeria has their own central bank. Nigeria has their own currency. Um, Nigeria has the biggest banks. The most relevant banks on the African continent are Nigerian banks. Mm -hmm. Nigeria has the biggest private sector. Nigeria has, you know, gigantic population, 200 plus million people. So we have everything that we need in Nigeria to be okay. We don't need to depend on somebody coming to save us. Now, someone coming in to help us, yes, of course, we are, we're very open to um, working with other organizations, with partnering, with, you know, working with everybody else. But that narrative that somebody's coming to save us is just not, I think it doesn't serve us as a narrative, and it's mm. factually incorrect. Mm. Mm. Great. So, yeah, so I, I'd like to throw this in, though. Mm. Um, I know that for every society, yeah, philanthropy exists. Mm -hmm. However, there is the responsibility of the government, mm -hmm. you know, which is basic healthcare needs, mm -hmm. for example, education. And then you see philanthropists um, playing these roles. And then my question is, mm -hmm. are, are the philanthropists not now taking over the responsibility that should be for the government? And should this give us a cause for concern? No, no. Okay. First of all, first of all, there's no way that there's enough philanthropy money to solve all of our basic needs, right? So the way it works and the way I see it is that we want to work with government and help bring our own contribution to making things better. So for instance, um, we work with six states in Nigeria specifically on routine immunization and it started with polio eradication but routine immunization. So making sure the children are vaccinated. So yes, Obviously, that is a responsibility that should, you know, rest on the government, rest on the government <laughs> and on the states. But if they don't have enough resources to do it, if they need our support to do it better, of course, we're there to help. But we're not there to substitute ourselves to government ever. And that's why we call them like memorandums of understanding in partnership with the government, because we're not trying to. That's not our vocation to step in and do government's job. Our our role is to support, is to contribute, mm. is to help. Because again, if we have resources and processes that can benefit our Nigerian brothers and sisters, why shouldn't we use those and bring those, um, you know, as our contribution to what's going on mm. in the in the country? So no, we there's no philanthropy that's trying to take over government's role. 
all the philanthropies and we work together is to support what the government is already doing and to help you know, either structure, support, strengthen, bring resources to mm. and contribute to um, the government doing a better job. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so, so I, I like the way you have put it. And that, you know, brings me to the issue of um, partnerships, mm -hmm. you know, collaboration. We, we, we definitely exist for relationships. Mm -hmm. So we really cannot do without this. And if we want to have, you know, um, long-lasting change, mm -hmm. then we need to consider collaboration, either the private sector, mm -hmm. you know, the public sector, and even the social sector where, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we're all doing a lot of philanthropic work. Mm -hmm. And and then my, my next question is, what do you think we can begin to do differently mm -hmm. to, to see change at a systemic level mm -hmm. where it is not just... Um, so I've seen where great projects mm -hmm. are implemented, and then you go back to such communities three months mm -hmm. later, six months later, and then you see a deterioration. Mm -hmm. So that means the change has not become systemic yet. Mm -hmm. So what can we begin to do differently mm -hmm. for us to see more, you know, a long-lasting change, mm -hmm. even as we do this philanthropic work? Right. So that's a really good question, because what you're really asking about is sustainability. How do yes. we make our investments sustainable? And I think that approach of you know, we'll go to a village and paint a school mm. and clap for ourselves and say we changed the system, that has shown its limits, mm. right? So how do we engage the community and get them involved in making the school better? Mm. How do we um, involve the community and make sure that the work that we're doing in those communities is actually sustainable mm. after we leave? I'll give you a very simple example. Mm. Um, my colleague, Ikem, who's in the studio with us now, was just in Bichi last week. Bichi mm. is a community in Kano State that was having a lot of issues with water. They didn't have, the, 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 the boreholes were drying up, they just didn't have enough water. So they asked us to, um, the traditional ruler asked us for support. Mm. So we went, we assessed, we saw that, and we built the 18 boreholes. Now, as we hand these boreholes over to them, the community, first of all, they're the ones, we work with the community to identify the spots where the water, uh, where the boreholes were gonna be drilled. Mm -hmm. Then, the whole work around how do you maintain the pumps? Yeah. How are we gonna make sure that the community is feeling responsible for these pumps? Because this is a gift that we gave them, mm -hmm. and we're not, we're not gonna be coming back every month to fix the pump, and so they have to be organized and know how to manage these pumps after we leave. And it's a joint effort. Mm -hmm. And so to me, if we're doing philanthropic projects, supporting communities without their input and their support and their connect, mm -hmm. it won't last. Right. It'll last as long as, like you just went and did a project and they're like, oh yeah, great. You take pictures, you promote yourself, you say you did it and then you leave. That's it. Then it's over. Mm. The minute something goes wrong with it, there's no ownership of that project. Right. So everything mm. we do is in partnership with the community. We get the traditional rulers and leaders involved. We work with the emirs and the local um, uh, religious and traditional rulers to make sure, and the, the the neighborhood leaders to make sure that they're they know what we're doing. They're okay with what we're doing. They're engaged yeah. with what we're doing. We don't ask them to contribute money per se, but we need their support to make our programs work. And I think that's where I've been seeing um, more actual results in what we do, whether it's um, 
you know, the boreholes, like I said, or, you know, even building a primary health care center mm. or um, doing a nutrition program, which we've um, started a few months ago. If the community is involved and you have the traditional leaders and the religious leaders and everybody's on board with what you're doing, you're bringing the resources to help them solve a problem, mm. but it's our problem to solve together. together yeah. That's the way to keep it sustainable. Mm. Great. great. Mm -hmm. So if I'm correct, you're saying community involvement is very, very key. 100%. Exactly. So they should be your number one partner. Mm -hmm. You're not mm -hmm. doing it for them. You're doing it with, with, them. with them. Yes. And that fosters ownership. Absolutely. After, you know, you're long gone. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk quickly about um, the pandemic. Mm. Um, in 2020, you know, mm -hmm. when <laughs> when it came, mm -hmm. uh, it, it caught us unawares. It did. And it revealed a couple of gaps in our system, our health infrastructure, mm -hmm. you know, our human resources, and all of that. But mm -hmm. then Dangote Foundation played a significant role mm -hmm. in uh, the response to, to the crisis then. Mm -hmm. What insights did you get from that? Because I know that um, they're even warning us, you know, ahead of another <laughs> crisis to come. Yeah, so what insights did you get from, did you get from uh, the coalition? against um, COVID, which mm -hmm. you led, mm -hmm. and um, wh what can you tell us about how we can prepare better mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for, you know, uncertainties yeah. as they come? So so that's another really, that was an, uh, an amazing example of collaboration in mm. almost in an unexpected way, because organizations that were meant to be competitors in the market were now collaborating right yeah. um and so the but the 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 two leaders of kakovi the two people who brought kakovi together and created it set it up were um and herbert wigway right mm. access bank so i was the administrator osai Adile, your yes. boss the ceo of act was um my quote-unquote deputy we were just in this thing together <laughs> so we had a access bank team we had a dongote foundation team and then the different all the different private sector um, companies that contributed to kakovit also um contributed staff and teams for us to really build out this private sector response to the mm. crisis that was coming the biggest lesson for me is that when the when a problem happens and affects all of us, people just jump into action and we mm -hmm. really collaborate in a way that is selfless. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really amazing to see all the banks in Nigeria literally work hand in hand, contribute the same amount of money and literally work as a team. Mm. So that was a beautiful time. I mean, horrible experience in terms of, you know, being so worried about what um, COVID could do to us mm. because we were watching TV every day and you're looking at the economic impact of this um, pandemic on our economy, on mm. people's livelihoods in Nigeria. It was really a difficult time. But the big lesson was that when push comes to shove, like when the fire is on everybody's, you know, <laughs> neck, like we know how to work together and collaborate. And I think that's a precious lesson to learn. The second one is those gaps that you were talking about before, mm -hmm. the, the, the gaps in our system were made glaring, mm -hmm. right? We didn't have um, isolation centers. We didn't have enough people trained. We didn't know where we were going to put the you know, people who had COVID. We didn't have, in the very first days of the pandemic, we didn't even have enough um, 
je- like hand washing, je- uh, mm. what do you call it? Sanitizer. Uh, no, sanitizer. Okay. I can't believe I forgot the word. <laughs> enough sanitizer, enough. We didn't have any organizations in Nigeria that made masks that were up to standard. Can you imagine? Mm. Wow. So, yes. So we had to, you know, struggle to get testing kits. We're fighting with everybody in the world to get the few testing kits that were out there because they just didn't exist. Mm. So now I think a, a whole industry has developed around, you know, the sanitation business. So, you know, hand sanitizer is available everywhere. Nigerians make enough hand sanitizer, yes. masks, um, you know, all the the testing kits, testing supplies. Nigerian organizations have come up with um uh the 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 rapid test mm. for covid-19 we have an uh, a lab um at redeemed university this uh professor christian happy came up with an actual uh solution right. so you know things pop out out of desperation and mm-hmm. that's good um in a way but the biggest lesson is if anything happens we know how to mobilize quickly and we know how to work together and i think a lot of the the prevention methods that we've put in place. How do you quickly activate the media? How do we get the communication yeah. out there? How do we, you know, quickly get um, food to people who are needy across the country? We now know how to do this. Mm. Hopefully we never have to, you know, activate that machine again, but at least we know um, how to do it going forward. Mm. Great, great, mm. awesome, awesome. So uh, uh, the pandemic actually, you know, brought us together mm-hmm. instead of, you know, it like, did. like dividing <laughs> us. It did. Great, thank you so much. Such mm. such insightful um, experience for you. I, I would like to know, um, or perhaps you want to share one or mm-hmm. two success stories from what Dangote Foundation is doing mm-hmm. uh, in African countries. Are there, you know, particular stories you'd like to share mm-hmm. and how that, you know, your work is right. contributing to uh, the economy? Okay. Of, our, of our continent? So there's, um, I have a few, but I'll pick like a recent one. Um, a recent one meaning something that just happened last week. Mm. So um, the biggest issue that we're, that we're focusing on is child malnutrition. Great. So when children don't get the nutrition they need in the first thousand days of their lives. So that means throughout their mother's pregnancy and until their second birthday. Then their brains are stunted and they're almost lost to us forever. They're not going to be able to be as, their potential is reduced Mm -hmm. as as human beings. And as they grow up, um, Mm -hmm. their ability to be successful in school, to be successful, productive adults is reduced. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to, you know, nip that in the bud before we even get to that. Now, there's a lot that we can do to prevent this malnutrition, for children to be so severely malnourished that they either die or that even if they survive, they're stunted Stunted. and they can't be helped. Now, there's, you know, some of the things that we can do is supplementary feeding. So in these families that are just poor, very little resources, you know, too many kids for the resources that the family has, Mm -hmm. the parents can do things to make their children's lives better, right? So there's supplementary feeding things that they can do. There's a mix of, um, let me call it like a a pop-type product Mm -hmm. that is made with soybeans and millet and... um, Okay, the ground nuts. Um, it doesn't have to be prepacked. That's oh, the whole point. It okay. doesn't have to be prepacked. You can make it yourself. So we can teach. We've been teaching women how to make it, 
And then now the next step is, well, then how do they make a livelihood out of it? Now we've shown you how to do it. We've given you samples. We've done it for like a month, two months. You know what to do to feed your child. But now how do you sustain yourself going forward mm. to do that? Because, we, yeah, we can come and tell you, uh, do like this, do like this. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, great. She stop but then there. how does she, mm. exactly, how does she then do it? And so we're developing this, um, like a program to help them start a business that will enable them to make that, it's called Tom Brown, that Tom Brown, and sell it to their neighbors. Some people will sell Tom Brown. Some others will do another um, activity. But to me, that grassroots impact is what we're looking for. Because before we can see big, gigantic impacts that we've moved the economy, we have to move the local um the local economy at the most at the most granular grassroots level are people able to take care of themselves, mm. take care of their children, take care of their lives, not have their children die because they don't have enough food to feed them. Mm. If we solve that, then we can go to the now next higher level, which is let's say education, right? How do we support teacher education? How do we get more children to go through the school system, mm -hmm. to be productive, to learn a skill, to be effective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So to me, the biggest impact that I've, the biggest potential impact that I see is getting those women, those moms mm -hmm. in the difficult areas able to take care of themselves going forward. And in the next few months, we'll be, I'm praying to God that this comes Makes through the sense. way we're designing it, mm. that these women are able to really take care of themselves and be independent. And when that, when that happens and fewer children die, then women have fewer children because they're sure that their children are going to survive. Yes. And then we can, you know, gradually take things up to the next level. Because when people are doing okay, that's fine. Let's just keep doing fine. Mm. The ones that are struggling are the ones that we're focusing mm. on. So in terms of impact, that's the impact that we're looking for. Impact at that grassroots level. Nobody should die of mm. hunger in Nigeria exactly. in 2023. Mm. Okay. Mm. okay, great. Thank you so much. So talking mm. about grassroots impact, um, we had a guest on the show some time ago who spoke about a report mm -hmm. of some study that was done, and mm -hmm. they found that a lot of the giving that happens actually goes to um, the public sector, it goes to international NGOs, <laughs> and, and then the local NGOs get a meager, you know, less mm -hmm. than 10% mm -hmm. of such available funding. And I'm wondering, this is so unfair. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it that they're not doing something right? And I'm, now I mean the local NGOs, because mm -hmm. they're closer to the grassroots, and we would expect that they should have a lot more access mm -hmm. to this kind of funding. So what do you think is wrong? What do you think mm -hmm. is happening? Is it that they don't know how to access this funding? Or what exactly is it? So it's a couple of things. But mm -hmm. the, the first one is, <laughs> let me just say it like this, the bias that comes with the giving in the mm -hmm. first place, right? So, of course, if I'm a multi-billion dollar organization, based in Europe, and I'm looking for who I'm going to run my program through okay. in a country, I'm looking for an organization that has a track record and credibility that I can trust, right? right? So being close to the people isn't enough of a qualification. Hmm. What you need to sh demonstrate is that you can manage this money properly. Now, of course, there's bias towards a bigger organization that has a bigger track record or even one of their own NGOs that are based here, 
Mm. They would say, okay, you go manage the grant for us because we don't know, we, we don't understand what's going on at the grassroots level. Mm. So the responsibility of the smaller NGOs and the smaller grassroots organizations is to be organized, is to have a track record, is to have financials, is to have monitoring and evaluation results, is to have, you know, meal plans, accountability and learning in addition to the M&E, and to, to be able to demonstrate that they can do it. Mm. Because fairness, is, is I, I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> Nothing is fair, right? So there's no yeah. fairness anywhere. Nothing is fair mm. in life. So we can't count on that as a metric, right? It's not going to be because um, we're the ones who know the people. Yeah, mm. sure. And we're sure you do. It's not enough. But then, exactly, that's not enough. Like, Show me what you've done for the past three years. How many right. people have you helped? Where is your staff from? What resources do you have? So it's a, it's a, it's an effort, I believe, that the local organizations have to make in order to access those grants that are coming from mm-hmm. the um, from these international organizations and, and NGOs because they have accountability to their funders, right? right? So, if, for instance, the global funder, Gavi or, you know, whoever we're going to pick as an example, they can't just give a, a small organization in, in a LGA in... I mean, I even pick any state and say, okay, yes, because you're close to the people, go do it. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, how do we even know? Show, yeah, what do you have? Show mm-hmm. us how you're doing it. So I think it's that's why there's a lot of capacity that needs to be built in our NGOs in Nigeria. Okay. A lot of capacity upskilling, having the right people with the right systems, with the right training, and just understanding how this international grant-making process is. Because at the end of the day, it's their money. They say that mm. they're giving it to us, but they're only going to give it to us if we fulfill the criteria. So for us to fulfill mm. the criteria, let's understand that and not rely on fairness and object and, and or anything like that, but rely on objectivity and facts. Mm. So if you have a track record, if you can show what you've been able to do, surely you'll be able to get um, funds. So that means that it's not something that can happen in a day or a year or two. You need an actual track record. So it takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of work. It's very difficult. This NGO work is not easy. No, it's not. (laughs) At all. Yeah. So if you're a leader of a nonprofit and Mm. you're seeking to do great things like this, you've heard it. Promises you so full. Okay, so we round up now with, Mm. you know, my very last question. And that is to ask, um, what would you like to say to, you know, the coming generation about philanthropy? How do we get youth mm-hmm. involved in philanthropy? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a question that is, we can look at it different ways, right? Okay. So I think youth already are, are majority, like if you look at the beneficiaries of most philanthropic programs, mm-hmm. it's young people, maybe even young women specifically. Yeah. But youth are the ones who are even the target, right, of the of benefiting from the, let me call it largesse of the philanthropist. Mm. So that's one way that they can be involved. They work in the existing philanthropies that are there. That's another way for them to be um, involved. To me, what we need to continue to instill in our youth is what we've always done, like our mm. culture and our rules and how we live and you know everything we've been taught is that you're supposed to share and help and contribute and be a you know, positive contributing member of society. 
So yes, of course, if you're a young person and you don't have any resources of your own to be able to, you know, put together and share, you know, mm. give it to somebody else, that can be a bit of a challenge. But if you think about, yeah, the young shall grow. You're young today, but you'll be a grown up at one point. Yes. And so what are you going to do? when you're in a position where you can help others. I think that's important for us to continue to talk to young people about. In terms of them getting involved in the giving, if you will, I think young people being organized, like a youth organization that's actually doing this demonstrated track record that we just discussed mm -hmm. a few minutes ago, they can get all kinds of resources from different places to encourage them and support them and push them along. But I think the the youth are already involved in philanthropy, mm -hmm. so it's not about getting them involved. It's maybe about More how do we get okay. a bigger role for them or a different role for them, or how do we get them as they grow from being young people to adults, mm -hmm. how do they carry that? You know, let's not lose that, right? Because I see a lot of, you know, a lot of things are, are changing. A lot of our our culture is becoming more and more assimilated to you know, the global culture, because everybody sees, we all watch the same TV, you listen to the same music, same lyrics, same everything. So what was ha what young Africans were exposed to 40, 50 years ago, is that the mm. same thing that young people are exposed to today? So how do we maintain our own, you know, values and traditions and, you know, who we are and help our young people as they grow up to never forget to, you know, live somebody else as they're growing mm. up? Mm. Mm, okay, this is quite an insightful conversation, <laughs> you know, much more than I expected. Thank you so much you for, for coming me. on this show. And with all that you yes. have discussed, I must say that the future of African philanthropy is actually bright. It's bright. <laughs> Brighter we than we think. It. We yes. can do it. Where yeah. it's, it's us. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for making You're out welcome. time to come here. You're and this is where we call it a wrap for today. Please stay tuned next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to ActPod. For inquiries and feedback, please reach us on actpod at actrustfoundation.org. Follow us on social media at actfoundation underscore on Instagram and Twitter and Aspire Coronation Trust Foundation on Facebook. The show is proudly powered by Aspire Coronation Trust Foundation. ActPod. Our story, our continent.